The following audio is the recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. You can visit our website at strosecc.org. Good morning. If you are with the pre-K class, you guys are dismissed. Back to your classes. If you've got your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1 is where we will be this morning. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand, and uh, one of our church members will will hand you one. So just slip up one, and we've got extra copies in the back coming down the aisle. Right over here, Travis, right there. And we'll be in Proverbs chapter 1. This is now our fourth week working through the book of Proverbs. We spent the first three weeks working through verses 1 through 7. Now, verses 1 through 7, we identified as the preamble to the book. It is introductory, though in those first seven verses, we learn uh, the book's primary author, King Solomon. We learn the book's purpose, that we may gain wisdom from God. And in verse 7, we learn the interpretive key to the whole book. That is, that the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is a right fear of the Lord. That is, it is to react or to respond or to relate to God as God has really revealed himself. Now, last week, we took a pause to explore how the book of Job helps us to interpret Proverbs. So Proverbs and Job would have been positioned uh, next to one another in the Hebrew structuring of the Bible, and Proverbs says, hey, live a wise life. There's blessing in living a wise life. And then Job begins in Job 1, 1, introducing you to a man who was described as a man who feared the Lord. In other words, a man who embodied Proverbs, but yet still faced extreme suffering (coughs) in his life. Now, we took that pause because we were and we still very much are, grieving the passing of a precious one-year-old named Gabriel Diarmon. This past Thursday's funeral service was nothing short of a miraculous display of the glory of Christ, shining through our church members, shining through the Diarmon family, as well as an opportunity for unbelievers to, to see what it means to have genuine faith that's tested by fire. Now, I know that our grief over the, lo- the loss of Gabriel has really only just begun, and, and there will be different seasons of sorrows in the coming days. Our, our grief will, will mold and shape, and we'll experience it in different ways. But as, I, as I considered what to do for our teaching series and how to progress as a church, I think the Lord gave me peace with moving forward with our Proverbs series, because I think God has us here for a reason, and I can only assume that God has a plan for shaping us, thank you, holding us fast, directing our steps through this book in the days ahead. And so, so we're going to keep pushing through this book to find what God has for us, beginning this morning with verses 8 through 19. 
So Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19, I will, um, I will pray. Well, first I'll read, and then I will pray for understanding. Verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Let's, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we come to you this morning and uh, we believe and we trust that you are guiding us as a church family to think rightly and to understand you and to understand your plan for the world. And God, we just pray that you would accomplish in this room what the book of Proverbs was written to accomplish. That, Father, that you would give knowledge and instruction. That you would help us to understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness and justice and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase learning. And the one who understands, obtain guidance to understand your word, God. We pray, accomplish your purpose in this room. By the power of your spirit, make us people who walk in God's world according to God's way. We do not know how to do that apart from your grace and apart from your revelation in your word. So open our darkened eyes. Help us to behold beautiful things in your word, we pray, by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Verse 8 is the beginning of the first of seven collections of wisdom writing in the book of Proverbs. You may have only ever thought of the book of Proverbs as one big collection of fortune cookie slogans, right? But there is a bit of a structure to the book. There is what looks like to be seven collections of wisdom writings that each take their own sort of form. You may ask, well, how do you know when one collection ends and another begins? Well, there's literary markers. They help us know when one section ends and a new section begins. For example, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the Proverbs of Solomon, like it's an, another introduction. 
signaling that one collection has ended and a new collection is starting. And then chapters 10 through 22, they basically follow a different kind of structure than chapters 1 through 9. Chapters 10 through 22, they totally consist of individual, unconnected, wise sayings. It's typically what you think of when you think of the book of Proverbs. You're thinking typically of chapters 10 through 22. But chapters 1 through 9 that we'll be journeying through for the next however long the Lord leads... Chapters 1 through 9 have a bit of a structure to them. While chapters 10 through 22, they bounce around from one saying to the next, chapter 1 through 9 is more like one big plea. It's one big urging of you to do something or to have a particular kind of perspective. It it's uses different arguments and illustrations and explanations, and it's urging you to choose the wise life rather than the foolish life. And in these nine chapters, among other things, there are ten lectures. Ten lectures that follow the format of a father and a mother instructing their child. I just listened to how the first collection of wisdom, it sort of moves along like the journey of raising a child in which you have the same types of conversations over and over and over and over and over again. The book almost feels like a long car ride with your child, right? <laughs> so listen to Proverbs 2.1. I'll just give you several examples to see how this sort of rolls along. Proverbs 2.1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Chapter 3, verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Chapter 3, verse 21. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. Be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, see, they, are, they were doing it back then. Well, when I was a kid, right? When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me. And he said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Now, we could keep going, but I'll stop there because I think you get sort of the flow, the point. The book of Proverbs is designed to speak to us the same way that a parent repeats him or herself to their children over and over and over again. Now, pause, and now we ask, why? Why is the wisdom book of the Old Testament structured to communicate its truth in this way? Well, let me give you the first and what I think is the most important reason, and it sort of stands above and behind the whole book of Proverbs, and it's this, truth number one. In Proverbs, we hear the voice of God, our good Father. In Proverbs, we hear the voice of God, our, God, our good Father. Now, we as a church, as I said a few moments ago, we are right now deeply grieving the loss of a one-year-old son. And our grief as church members, that is very real, pales in comparison to the grief that Gabriel's parents are feeling and will feel in varying degrees for the rest of their lives. As Austin said in the funeral on Thursday, it is a bitter well from which they will drink until eternity comes. 
In fact, if you've never experienced the loss of a child, if you're a parent in the room, one of the ways that you automatically empathize with them in the depth of their grief, in your own head, unintentionally, the way that you empathize is you unintentionally imagine what it would be like to lose your own child. I had a conversation with one person who said, said am, I, am, I, am I selfish, am I sinful for, for having these thoughts of thinking about my own child rather than thinking about the loss of this child? I said, no, that's how you are identifying with the depth of this kind of incomparable sorrow in the world. This kind of sorrow is unique to all other kinds of suffering in the world. This is different. Last night, uh, Anne-Marie lost her grandmother at 2 a.m. in the morning. We'll be going to another funeral probably this week, and, and we will grieve, and we have grieved. Late last night, prayed out to God, um, but, but there's a different kind of grieving for, for a grandmother than there is a son. There's a di- both grief, both sorrow, but there's something unique in the human heart that happens when a child dies. And I think the depth of our grief in such a circumstance is actually there, and it's pointing to us something beyond. Why is it that we feel so deeply for our children? It is not because they're particularly particularly useful to us at a young age. It's not because they contribute to the household financially. It's certainly not because they're good housekeepers, right? Right? So why is it that we feel so deeply for our children, especially small children? Well, I think it's because we were made in the image of God. I think that we are hardwired from the foundation of the world to be creatures who feel a different kind of deeply for their children, the kind of love that God feels for His children. It's no accident that God has revealed himself to us as a heavenly father. It's no surprise that our God has always existed as father, son, and spirit. He has always been the kind of God who's been giving and receiving fatherly affection. And thus he created humans to reflect that same kind of deep affection. So the the deep and incomparable grief that maybe you have felt in losing a child, even in a miscarriage where you've never met that child, but, the, but the, the pain is so real. That serves, that feeling, that serves as a testimony to how much your heavenly Father loves you even in that moment of sorrow. And just like my two-year-old, when she goes to the doctor to get a shot, she can't comprehend the plans that I have for her, for her good, for her growth, for her health, and her protection. And she looks at me like I am doing her wrong in that moment. She cannot fathom the plans that I have for her. We cannot fathom the plans of a loving God, especially in the moment of pain. Or we look back at him and, and we seem to think, you have the power to stop this or to change this, and we don't understand why. Let me just pause there. I just want to urge you, church family, to consider how how infinitely wise our God is and compared to us. I mean, if if I am that much more wise than my two-year-old to understand that this doctor's visit is good for her, 
how much more the God of the universe who created all things and has eternally existed. And so as she looks back at me and says, you have the power to stop this, why didn't you? And as we look back to God and say, you have the power to stop this, why don't you? We're resigned to trust that he's a good father. And then let me remind you, not only of his wisdom beyond ours, but of his love for you, because our love for our own children are only a shadow of God's love for his children, whom he adopted at the price of Jesus' bloodshed for us. I mean, this is the gospel message, isn't it? Our, Our God has existed from eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit. We reject fellowship with him when we sinned against him, but God loves us so much, he adopts us back into the family fellowship once again by sending Jesus to take our place and pay the price for our sin. We join the family of God by placing trust in Jesus. God the Son sent from God the Father to purchase his children with his blood. God is a loving Father who went to great lengths to fellowship with us forever. That's why Jesus says, pray this way in Matthew 6. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And our Father has inspired a book called the book of Proverbs. And he's ordered it in such a way that it speaks to us much like a father speaks to his children. But as much as we know that God the Father is above and behind and beyond the voice of Proverbs as this good father speaking... We, we do have to press further and say, was that in Solomon's mind when he was writing this? I mean, perhaps. I mean, why did King Solomon structure his book this way? Why did he structure this section to operate like lectures from a parent to a child? If you remember back in the preamble, Solomon says, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm writing this or I'm compiling this is because I want wisdom to be received and I want wisdom to be given. And I think Solomon understood that if the kingdom of Israel was to be a society that glorified the one true God, he understood that the family unit was God's plan for passing down that wisdom. And so this leads us to truth number two this morning. Truth number two. Truth number two. The family is God's plan for teaching wisdom. The family is God's plan for teaching God's wisdom. Listen to this helpful commentary from Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltz. He says, he says this, It appears Solomon intended to pass his wisdom to Israel's youth by putting his proverbs in the mouths of godly parents, even as Moses disseminated the law, the law in the home. Now remember, Solomon would have been very familiar with the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And and God had spoke clearly to Moses. This is the plan. This is what's required for Israel to continue as a God-glorifying society. Listen to what Moses says. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. You're probably familiar with this. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, what are you supposed to do with these words? Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. 
And you should talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They should be frontlets between your eyes. You should write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is God's plan for expanding God's kingdom. Godly households where parents take the primary responsibility for teaching their children the words and wisdom of God. And thus, the book on wisdom begins this. Verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Several things to notice in the first two lines. Parents are called by God to teach their children the things of God so that as their children grow, they actually wear their parents' instruction like graceful garland and a pendant around the neck. The concept is is that as your children grow, they exemplify, they put on, they wear for the world to see the wisdom and instruction you teach them. In other words, God's aim is to be glorified. He, he, He aims that his character will be reflected in the world by the way their parents dress their children with the wisdom of God day in and day out. If they heed your instruction, they will be blessed and they will be a blessing to others. And so let me just pause here and say, parent in the room, if the last couple weeks have taught you anything, it should have taught you how much of a privilege, how much a gift of grace it is that you have any time with your children. God has given you this responsibility The book of Proverbs is not structured to communicate these truths like a a teacher in the public school system or the, the private school tutor or the nanny or the church children's programming. No, none of those voices are speaking here. There's an insane concept that has crept into the American church culture over the last half century. And the assumption is, is that you, you, what you need to do is simply send your child to the church program so that they'll be shaped by the wisdom and words of God for one hour a week. But how? How will a child be shaped according to God's wisdom by attending a one-hour weekly program at a church when they live with you all the other hours of the week? They, 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 they watch screens in your home more than they sit in the council of the godly at church. God established the family unit to function like a a well-equipped disciple-making unit long before he established even local churches under the headship of Christ. The institution of the church did not replace the institution of the family. The church now only comes alongside the family to encourage the family to fulfill its God-given purpose. Fathers, it's your teaching. Mothers, it's your instruction, not just in the the moment that you've set aside, but, but Deuteronomy says when you lie down and when you walk and when you talk and when you do normal life, You're teaching something to your children. 
Notice here in Proverbs that, that both father and mother are cooperating in this endeavor to teach their children. Now, I know we have broken families represented here in this room. I know we have families where one spouse is a believer in Jesus and the other may not be. I know that these are are some of the most trying aspects of some of our church members' lives. And I'm not saying that this is the way it is for everyone in the room. I'm not saying that you experienced this type of teaching from your own parents as a child. I know there are people that were adopted later in life that their, their childhood looked nothing like being adorned with graceful garland on their head. But I am saying that this is God's good design that we are to pursue. A father and a mother cooperating in the effort to raise children in the words and wisdom of God. And if you are a situation that does not look like this and there's nothing in your control that could change this, let me just encourage you that God is so gracious to fill up what is lacking. But fathers, I I want to to speak to you specifically this morning as we look at this father in Proverbs over and over again. There is an epidemic, if you will, of children growing up without their fathers. Whether it's without their father, it's present in their lives at all, or just their fathers are not present uh, in the things of God. And fathers, I want to speak to you specifically and just tell you that it is your sinfulness, it is your pride, it is your lazy, it is your prolonged adolescence that punts this responsibility for your wives to bear alone. Father and mother are seen in this text as a cooperation teaching their children. But as you progress through the book, you'll notice it's primarily the voice of the father that you actually hear leading out in the endeavor. It was Adam whom God confronted in the garden for the sin committed. It's husbands who are responsible for washing their wives with the water of the word, Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. It's fathers who Paul particularly calls out as responsible for children, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but what are you supposed to do? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Both parents have a high calling of raising their children, but husbands and fathers, this text of Scripture holds you responsible for the spiritual climate of your household. Don't act Like your father, Adam, who shirked his responsibility and cast blame on the wife for the sin in the garden. Walk in the steps of Jesus, who took responsibility, took the blame that was not his, and sacrificed himself for the good of his bride and of his children. Your sons and your daughters, they need you to be a biblical man, not to kick that over to your wife to handle all by herself. Now, if you're not a parent in the room, don't check out here. Christ has expanded the family language to now include the church. The Apostle Paul had no wife. He had no biological children. But listen to how he describes the Thessalonians 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, he says this, Paul says this, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Chapter 2, verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Christian, you might not have children or a family, but you live in a world where many of us, if not most of us, did not have parents who raised us or instructed us in the things of God. And if they didn't do it, who will do it? Where will we turn if we've never heard words of wisdom? Will we turn to the institution which was given to the world to redeem things that are broken. We turn to relationships with the church. We turn to those who have walked the worthy walk for longer than us to, to give us wisdom that we do not have. We turn to those in the church who haven't walked as long as us to give them wisdom that they may not have. The church is the redemptive community that now fills in the gaps where the family units have been obliterated by the brokenness of the world. If you're a single mom in here and you feel that, that your, your child is missing the, the influence of a godly man in his life to show him what it is to be uh, a man who pursues the Lord, look around in this room. There are men willing to step into the gaps. If you're a single dad in the room and you're wanting your child to see what it's like to have a loving mother who loves the Lord Jesus, look around. There are women who will stand in the gaps. Christ, by his grace, meets us in our brokenness and he's given us the good gift of the Spirit of God in the people of God to help accomplish the mission and the design of God. In our Wednesday night community kids ministry, we pick up kids from around St. Rose who will never be taught the wisdom of God's words unless the church steps in and fills the gap. There are adults in our workplaces and neighborhoods who have no graceful garland on their head, no pendants of wisdom around their neck, and God has placed you in their life with the Spirit of Christ. This is our call as every Christian. To, to parent somebody <laughs> and to be parented. So what do we do? What, do we, what is it that we're really teaching our children? I'm charging you, mothers and fathers, to, to, to step into God's design to teach wisdom. But what is it that we're teaching? I mean, other than just teaching them actual words of Scripture, how do we instruct? How do we teach? What are we preparing our children for or our disciples for? Well, it's more than just transferring head knowledge to your children. It is good, good, true. Have your children memorize scripture. Do it as much as you possibly can. Teach them facts about the Lord and his word. But we're not just trying to force head knowledge into kids' brains that they can recite the right things. The goal is that they would be able to take that knowledge and walk in wisdom, right? To walk in God's world according to God's way, especially when the world starts to proclaim different messages to them. Verse, verse 10, the author transitions to the summary statement for this first parental lecture. And listen to what he says, verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. My son, if sinners entice you, do not 
consent. So another force is introduced in verse 10, isn't there? Another influence upon the child. Sinners are going to entice you, my child. And verse 11 goes on to describe what this is going to look like. Verse 11, if they say, come with us, let us lie, wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason, like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods, we, we shall fill our houses with plunder, throw in your lot among us, we will have one purse. The world comes with promises to your children. The world doesn't sit back to allow you to disciple your children or to disciple anyone. There's your voice, and then there's a lot of other voices, aren't there? The world comes with promises of adventure. I mean, the Proverbs warn of those who seek thrill and purpose and adventure in the ambush of an innocent person. There's something almost exciting about the invitation. We'll, we'll break free from this mundane, righteous world, and we'll live on the edge. We'll lay in wait and attack and swallow up our victims in whole. They come not only with promises of adventure, but promises of easy fulfillment. Why'd you work a day job when you can throw your lot in with us and make easy money? Everybody wants easy money. Get on YouTube. Just search easy money. You'll find a lot of views. Listen to the enticement of verse 13. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. The promises for fulfilling things. Material possessions that will bring happiness, and you can get them the easy way rather than the hard way. Just join us for the road of easy fulfillment. Big payoff to your fleshly desires with little work necessary. Not only will you have an adventure, not only will you have some easy fulfillment of your desires, you'll have a community to pursue it all with. This, this world comes with promises of belonging for a season, doesn't it? Deep within every soul is a longing for adventure, for purpose, for fulfillment, and for belonging to some type of community. Just look back in the enticement again, and I just want you to notice the first person plural pronouns that are repeated over and over and over again. This is, this is what your children will gravitate to. It's some community out there that will include them and make them have some sort of sense of identity. Verse 11, come with us. Let us lie and wait for the blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us, and we will all have one purse. So much of our teenagers' poor decision-making comes from a motivation for belonging. They want to belong to a group, whatever social group that they think will provide them the deepest sense of identity, the deepest sense of purpose and protection from the cold, hard, isolating world. These temptations are present in everyone's life, and they will absolutely be present in the growing adolescent. But the Proverbs... The father in Proverbs prepares them for this. He says very boldly and very clearly, do not consent. But that's not all he says. I think we can learn a thing or two about disciple making by the way the father preps the child for the coming onslaught of temptation. 
So, so look at verse 15. Listen, now the father's going in now, right? He's got, the, he's got the son's attention. They've locked eyes. He's no longer doing this all over the place. He's got the, he's got the son paying attention, and now here comes the, the, the instruction. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. In vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men, these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Truth number three, the good father prepares his children for the world's enticement. Remember, this isn't just about information transfer. This is about training and teaching someone to walk wisely when the world is telling them to do otherwise. Several components rise to the surface of this text. You can think of these as kind of subpoints of this preparation. Firstly, notice this, the good father teaches what is right and wrong. Now, that, that may seem obvious, like an obvious responsibility to some of you, but it's not in our world of relativism and fluid truth where you get to choose your own truth. The father clearly identifies this thing is evil. This thing is evil. And he needs to do that because we're not born with some sense uh, of, of uh, some perfect moral sense. We are born with some sense of right and wrong, but that morality needs to be shaped and conformed to what is true. Do not teach your children that they are little gods, getting to choose what they believe to be right and wrong. There is a God who has decided what is right and wrong. We conform our ways to his words. We don't tell him to conform to our ways. No, there's a God who has a holy standard, and parents, we teach our children that standard. They won't know it by themselves. They're not, my, my children weren't born knowing that lying was bad. They, they think it's advantageous at times. The good father doesn't just inform these things, he also prohibits them. The good father prohibits his son from pursuing evil. He identifies it, and then look, verse 15, my son, don't walk with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. This is not advice. The father didn't try to be best friends with the son here and just pull him aside, hey, come on, bud, and let's just talk about some options that you have in your life. No, no, this is the father giving a command, saying that loving parents, they teach their children, but they also prohibit them from doing evil things. It is not unloving to deny your child the thing that he or she thinks that they want. It's not unloving to enforce rules that they don't understand, but that will keep them safe. I've used this analogy over and over again, but it was fresh yesterday. When I'm stressed, I don't know if you know this, when I'm stressed, I, I do construction projects. I just build stuff. <laughs> And so yesterday, that was one of those days, I just built stuff and invited, you know, uh, well, I uh, kind of invited, invited my kids to come outside and, and just to be around, and they're playing and all that kind of stuff, but there's power tools everywhere. And multiple times, Amelia and Owen wanted to turn on the table saw and the circular saw and to play with these as if they were toys, and I had to prohibit them from even getting close. They didn't understand but I loved them by prohibiting them from doing something. Parent, lovingly command your children not to walk the paths of the wicked. It's what God's done for us. He lovingly says, don't do this. It will hurt you. But don't just command them. They will inevitably ask the question, why? 
Why? Why not? Well, what about in five minutes? What about in seven minutes? <laughs> right? They will ask you why. And let me just encourage you, uh, don't, don't say, because I said so. It's true, they need to learn how to submit to authority, right? But that's not what the good father does here in Proverbs. He doesn't say, just because I said so. The good father actually explains that evil lies to them. He, he, he takes a step into their world and he explains, no, 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 the thing you think you want brings you harm. I mean, look at, look at verse 16. Their feet run to evil, they make haste to shed blood, for in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. The father takes a moment to explain to the child, evil always backfires. Sin always promises life and always leads to death. He even uses an analogy here, right? Helpful. He, he says birds will recognize when a net is spread in front of them and that bird will avoid that net. Even birds can see when there's a trap set for them. But the father says, but these men, these sinners, they walk right into the trap. They think they're going to shed. And isn't that just a helpful thing? I and mean, can you imagine just sitting down with a daughter or, and there's a particular thing that you're wrestling with and you're outside and a bird comes up. And I said, if I were to lay out, you know, a trap right here, this bird would fly right over. They would recognize this as a trap. Foolish people don't recognize when there's a trap. Do you see how the father's just kind of like getting on their level trying to teach? These men think they're going to shed innocent blood, but it's their own blood that will be shed in the end. These think that they're setting an ambush to others, but they'll fall to their own ambush. And you see the parallels with the book of James we're studying in community group. James says the same things to the church in James 1, 14. He says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved Brothers, sin's a liar, and the promises always fail. It will not provide you a sense of adventure. There's no such thing as cheap and easy fulfillment, and belonging with the world is not the community you want to belong to if that community goes to hell forever. If that community leads you off the cliff, there is a better way, a narrow path, a straight path, one that leads to life. There's a wisdom way which invites you to the greatest adventure in the history of the world. You're invited to participate in the mission of God to glorify his name to the ends of the earth. You want adventure? Let's read some of the great missionary biographies of the world. Men and women who went to the cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands and shared Jesus with them. And then a church was born. Let's, let's, let's give adventure. If you want excitement in your life, we've got excitement in Christianity. You want fulfillment, you want satisfaction, you want joy. Don't go to wells that have holes in them where the water will be empty and at the end of the day you'll feel worse than when you did that thing you thought would bring fulfillment. No, turn to Jesus who stands up and proclaims, whoever drinks of the water I give him, he will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him becomes in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. You want belonging? Then belong to God and his people for eternity. There's a community whose mission is to embrace you with the love of Jesus. 
There's a community called the church where people come together and though they are imperfect and though they fail, they try to forgive one another as Jesus forgave, to serve one another as Jesus served, to teach one another as Jesus taught, to rejoice with one another as Jesus rejoiced, to, re- to weep with one another when the pain and suffering comes. It's the community of the church where you can find belonging that starts now and goes on into eternity. The promises of the gospel of Jesus are always better than the promises of sin. The promises of the gospel always deliver, and the promises of the world do not. And the good father and the good mother teaches these things to their children as a heavenly reflection, as a reflection of the heavenly father who teaches us these things, right? God loves you, and he has given you instruction in this book. He's given you instruction, particularly in the book of Proverbs. God, our good father, he teaches us what is evil. He prohibits us from the evil things. He clearly explains the lies of the evil one. The question is, will you hear his instruction? Will Proverbs 1, 8, and 9 be true of you and your relationship with God? Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. They are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Let me conclude very quickly with three takeaways. Number one, number one, parents, lead your family in the wisdom of God. If you do not have some set-aside time where you as a family read scripture together and pray, I just want to strongly encourage you to incorporate something like this into your weekly rhythm. Your kids, they don't just hear what you say, they watch what you prioritize. I'll say that again. They, they don't just hear what you say, they watch what you, you prioritize. Do your children believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the mission is the most important thing in your life by the choices you make every Sunday morning? They watch to see if your faith makes a difference at home or if it's just a box you pull off the shelf on Sunday mornings sometimes. And no matter what you say in passing, it's the priorities you're making in your life that will speak the louder word. Why are so many kids growing up and in high school or in college leaving the faith? It's because they begin to question whether, a lot of times, whether their parents' faith was genuine at all. Or if it was just a cultural thing that they did sometimes on Sunday mornings. Lead your family in the wisdom of God. Your kids are watching If you're curious on even how to do that, I have tons of book recommendations if you're interested. Even our kids' class that we're doing, we're working through the book of Proverbs uh, in our kids' training class right now, and there's a family devotion. It's called a 10-minute family devotion called Walking with the Wise, and it's a 10-minute devotion. You just, you don't know what to do, you just read it out loud, and you ask the questions, and you sing the little song with your kid. And it's, it's five times a week, which is a lot to commit to, five times a week. But, but it'll, it'll follow along with what we're teaching on Sunday morning. I encourage that to you. Get on Amazon for like 11 bucks, right? So if you're, if you're curious on what to do, please reach out to us and talk afterwards. Takeaway number two, disciple others with compassion and intentionality of a loving parent. 
So whether, whether it be in community group or community kids or with a beloved friend, listen, every single person in the world needs people in their life who will fill this role of teaching and instructing and love for the good of the other. Everyone needs this. You are made to need this. And number three, last takeaway, let's just this morning meditate on God as your good father. Meditate on God as your good father. Meditate on his wisdom, his love, his word that speaks for your good. Do you trust him to be a good father to you? Do you trust that his instructions are for your good? They're not to hamstring you. They're not to keep you from what you think is really joyful and restful and relaxing. They're not to keep you from your perfect schedule in your life. God speaks for your good the same way that I speak to my children for their good when they're picking up the table saw. Will you reflect his image to your own family, to the world around you? Let's pray to this end. Father, I must confess that I need this sermon to play in my head daily. I fail at this so much. I do not preach as a man who has this figured out by any means. And so, God, I just repent and I pray that you would help me to see my children as precious gifts to be molded and shaped. And Lord, I pray that as I pursue that with all my heart and as Anne-Marie pursues that with all her heart, and as we have been reminded of the preciousness of life and just the gift that it is, God, I pray that our whole church would be a church that, that functions like a redemptive family, shaping and molding one another. And God, that the men and women in our church, as they do have children, Father, we pray they would reflect the Heavenly Father. Lord, we ask, do those types of things in our hearts, whether it be that we need to repent, whether it need to be that we need to rest in our Father's arms, help us now to respond rightly in Jesus' name.